Hello everyone, this is Law for Community Workers on the Go, a podcast for community and health workers. My name is Bridget Barker. I work in the Community Legal Education Branch at Legal Aid, New South Wales. I would like to begin by acknowledging that this recording was made on the country of the Widjibal Wyabal people of the Bundjalung Nation and on the country of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I acknowledge that this is Aboriginal land. Always was, always will be. This is a series called Renting Matters. In Renting Matters, we will talk about being a tenant in New South Wales. The series is a joint project between Legal Aid New South Wales and the Tenants' Union of New South Wales. The Tenants' Union is a community legal centre that specialises in New South Wales residential tenancies laws. It is the main body resourcing tenancy advocacy services across the state. It works to promote the interests of tenants across New South Wales. The show notes attached to each episode will include links to resources and to organisations you can contact when you are helping a client with a tenancy issue. Please be aware that tenancy laws vary from state to state. So if you are listening to this podcast from another state or territory, the laws about tenancy may be different to those we talk about in New South Wales. This is the second episode in Renting Matters. During this episode, we're going to explore problems that arise during the tenancy when the cracks start to emerge. You're going to hear from Olivia, a tenants advocate with the Tenants Union. Olivia will talk about the problems that people call about that arise during their tenancy. So a tenant has a responsibility to report repairs that's legislated. They have to do that. It's probably the overriding responsibility that a tenant has. And once that's reported, then a landlord has a responsibility to undertake those repairs with reasonable diligence. We'll also speak to Marilyn. Marilyn is a support worker who works with clients to support them maintain their tenancies. My role would be, I needed to assist the client to deal with bureaucracy. Again, it depends very much on the client as what the problem is, but also to remain housed and to not create future problems for themselves. And that last one is a big one, actually. So let's begin. Good morning, Olivia. Thank you for joining me for the Tenancy Podcast today. Today's episode is about when cracks emerge in a tenancy. The first thing I wanted to ask you about is what are the main issues you see that arise during a tenancy once it's been established? Well, repairs. Repairs are a huge issue in residential tenancies. Access is also a big issue a landlord or a real estate agent on behalf of a landlord accessing a property. Utilities is also a big issue. Okay, so in relation to repairs and maintenance, what can a tenant do if they need repairs done to a rental property? A tenant has a responsibility to report repairs. That's legislated. They have to do that. It's probably the overriding responsibility that a tenant has and once that's reported then a landlord has 
a responsibility to undertake those repairs with reasonable diligence. So their responsibility is to maintain the property in a reasonable state of repair. The best thing to do, in my experience, is to tell the landlord directly or the real estate agent, put it in writing. It's really important to keep records of informing a real estate agent or a landlord about repairs that are needed because if they don't action those repairs, the next step would be to make a tribunal application. So in relation to putting it in writing, I know that uh, the Tenants' Union has a sample letter on the website, is that correct? Yeah, the Tenants' Union has amazing online resources for everything, but there are lots of sample letters and there is a repairs sample letter. Okay, we'll include a link to the sample letter in the show notes for this episode. In your experience, does sending a letter help get action taken on repairs? It can. It really depends on your relationship with the property manager or the landlord directly. But just saying broadly, if you deal directly with a landlord or a property manager, in my experience, the best thing to do is to be really clear about the repair is that's needed, to give them a time frame to respond. There's a process in the legislation for urgent repairs, but if it's a non-urgent repair, a week, a couple of days, depending on how many times you've already asked them to repair it. And then depending on how you want to communicate, you can say something along the lines of, I expect to hear back within this time frame, and if not, I'll be making a tribunal application. I do find that at least putting a tribunal application on the table, it can lead to action in relation to repairs. Nobody wants to go through any kind of litigation. It's the way that you word it. <laughs> Sometimes mm. it can provide a better outcome if the language is not too forceful, but you also want to put it on the table. And when we're talking about the tribunal, we're referring to the Consumer and Commercial Division of the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal? Yeah, that's right. NCAT. Do you find many tenants actually want to go to the tribunal? No. Nobody wants to go to the tribunal. It's extremely rare that tenants want to go to the tribunal. It's time-consuming. It's a cost-free jurisdiction, so it's accessible, but tenants do not want to go to the tribunal. They just want to live in healthy, secure accommodation. Which is what we all want. Yeah. And Olivia, what about mould? I understand that can often be an issue that comes up in tenancy yeah, we have lots of calls about mould, particularly in the middle of winter. It's a big issue for tenants. There's a lot of issues with mould because it's not explicitly dealt with in the legislation. There's not a provision specifically that speaks to mould and evidence you should have to provide to prove mould or who's responsible for mould or how to remediate mould. But it can fit into lots of provisions in the legislation and it really impacts tenants' lives. It can be a very long and vexed process to get mould dealt with in a property. Are tenants able to ask for a reduction in rent if repairs aren't being done or if a mould problem is not being addressed when they've asked about it? Absolutely. So for a rent reduction claim, you need to 
show that the landlord failed to take action on something or failed to do something or omitted something. Because at the beginning of a tenancy, you agree to pay a certain amount of money. You bargain to pay money to receive services and facilities. And with mould, often it's like entire sections of the property that you can't use, like bedrooms and then lounge rooms become bedrooms. So the whole use of the property is changed, but you're still paying the same amount of rent. You're paying too much rent because you're not getting the things that you agreed to pay for at the beginning. So that's generally how a rent reduction should work. You also mentioned privacy and access being a common issue that arises during tenancy. What sorts of issues do you see relating to privacy and access? Direct landlord-managed properties can be problematic, particularly granny flats. When there's shared common areas with a landlord, there can be issues with privacy and access. Often if a landlord is managing a property directly. They don't seem to understand that there are laws that govern their relationship with the tenant. They just see it as their property, that they can access it whenever they want, not that it's the tenant's home and that they have a legal right to peace, comfort and privacy. So it can be difficult to get that across. What about privacy in relation to the information that a prospective tenant might be asked to provide when they're applying for a tenancy? Yeah, it's not regulated. The Residential Tenancies Act, broadly speaking, deals with tenancies once the contract has been signed and you've entered a contract. Those kind of pre-contractual negotiations, broadly, they're not covered. And so the application process is something that happens before a contract is signed. There is no procedure for that. And there can be lots of privacy concerns. We get a lot of calls about privacy concerns that people have with providing a lot of information or having to provide information that they might not have access to because of their residency status or age. There's lots of things that might preclude people from having a a raft of different documentation, which really isn't necessary to show whether or not you can afford to pay rent and if you're a suitable candidate for a residential tenancy. Thank you. Are there particular issues that have arisen relating to access during COVID-19? Yes, definitely, because it's changing really rapidly. Tenants and real estate agents have really different agendas when it comes to residential tenancies. Like for tenants, it's their home, it's where they live. And for real estate agents, it's a business. And we see that difference in approach regularly. Does it arise where properties are being offered for sale while they're tenanted? Yeah, definitely. So there are the moratoriums on terminating tenancies for rent arrears and other things, but sale of property is not restricted. Are there issues that have arisen as a result of COVID where tenants have people coming into their home to inspect it when the property's been advertised for sale that are a concern to the tenants? Absolutely particularly where some parts of an area might be explicitly restricted from any kind of access and then the next suburb over isn't restricted. It's very broad in the way that it's applied. Different real estate agents will do different things and it's very confusing for tenants. It's really worrying. Like They might have very serious health concerns. 
they might be in an area where access is permitted, but they have specific vulnerabilities, which mean that they don't want people accessing their homes. I would have thought that's a fairly legitimate concern to have. Yeah, absolutely. I think the problem that tenants have in those circumstances is that they don't want to get into trouble. They don't want to cause problems for their tenancy and they get worried if they say, I prefer that you not visit or I prefer that you not do that at this time because they're always concerned, particularly in the regional areas at the moment about receiving termination notices and not being able to find alternative accommodation, not being able to find somewhere else to live for their families. Olivia, what about rent increases? Is that often an issue for tenants? Yeah, there's been a dramatic drop in rent increases in the city, but there's been a lot of movement to regional areas. So it's become a lot more competitive. So with competition comes those market forces that push things like rent up, unfortunately. Is there anything a tenant can do to resist a rent increase? Yeah, there are restrictions on the amount of rent increases that you can receive if you're in a periodic agreement. If you're in a fixed term agreement, it needs to be calculated and written into the agreement. So essentially you're agreeing to it before you sign a contract and you can make an application that a rent increase is excessive, ask the tribunal to make orders that a rent increase is excessive if you receive what you consider to be an excessive rent increase during a periodic term. But like with any tribunal process, there's always that concern that if you don't pay the rent increase, your tenancy will be terminated. I understand that you've seen new issues arise in relation to tenancy with the development of technology in modern apartment buildings. Yeah, we've seen a shift in the types of locks that are installed. It might require you to have a smartphone in order to access it. So it's limiting to people who don't have access to that type of technology or it's potentially open to a lack of security if you can't access the common areas of the building late at night or if you're having a problem with your phone, basically. And just one last question, Olivia, do you have any tips for community or health workers helping clients with a tenancy issue that happens during the tenancy? Yeah, I think they probably already know because their work is amazing, but documentation, unfortunately, lots of really protracted issues in community and public housing and private tenancies is most likely going to end up at the tribunal at some point and the tribunal is a paper-based jurisdiction like all courts and tribunals and you can have you know incredible stories and evidence from people but if you don't have it in writing if you don't have paper evidence it's most likely not going to succeed so keeping records, writing things down. That would be my primary piece of advice and manage expectations about the tribunal process. The tenants 
advice and advocacy services are here to help and we can um, work together to get outcomes for people, for renters in New South Wales. And I think it's best when all of these organisations work together. It can be a really, really successful way to get good outcomes. That's a great note to end on. We're now going to speak to Marilyn. Marilyn is a support worker who works with clients with disabilities and helps them maintain their tenancies. Marilyn also volunteers on the advice line with the Tenants Union. We'll speak with Marilyn about the support she's been able to provide to tenants to help them maintain their tenancy. Marilyn, in the work that you've done with clients, I understand that you've helped them deal with problems that have arisen during their tenancies. If you wouldn't mind telling us the sorts of problems that have arisen and how you've helped clients resolve them. Okay, well, actually one of the things that comes through the NDIS plan, which fits here very nicely, is that there's such a thing as a tenancy obligations assistant. And that was my formal role for one of these clients was to actually help them meet their tenancy obligations. And this is a very sharp person, but she was totally non-compliant with her lease. She was petrified of talking with the agent. I had to get her compliant with the legals of the lease and then help her when it came to renewal of the lease, do the renewal to plan for payments so that she didn't end up getting a failure to pay because of timing. There were difficulties with the payment timings. So it's actually a bigger job than you would imagine. Were there specific obligations the client hadn't met? Yes. Under the Act, she's obliged to report any problems, but her stress level was such that she couldn't even face thinking about the problems, like a broken tile or something like that. And so... It was a matter of writing the list for her. Words like, once again, I uh, notify you of problems in this time. This is the problem without actually putting dates on it. So it was a matter of helping her to feel that her paperwork was correct as much as helping the, the landlord and being compliant with the Act. So her fear had to be dealt with. And when it came to the renewal of the lease, were there particular tasks that you needed to do to assist that process? Yes. Uh, One of them is working through the lease with the client and also having her realise that she can't change the lease. She can ask for changes in the lease, but she couldn't change the lease. And that took quite some time to do. And also making sure that the agent had done the right thing. Because agents, often with the best intention, make terrible errors in forms. Or they'll ask for things that are uh, unreasonable. Things like uh, listing that she has keys that she doesn't have or uh, things left in the apartment which are not there. Had you assisted a client in relation to an issue they had with a public housing provider? Yes, through the advice line, yes, I have. The difficulty of working with housing to deal with office of houses that fit the medical condition of the person. 
in this particular case, she'd been offered houses which her medical conditions did not work with at all. So eventually we developed a form which actually showed her needs and which medical conditions they related to because the people in housing don't really know what she has. You know, they, they don't get to meet her really. And then eventually we were very lucky that one of the people in one of the community housing organisations that is managing housing actually understood what this form was and agreed to listen to her reasons why some of the housing offers were not appropriate. Then she would classify them as not a genuine offer. So the person was not having to fear that she was about to lose her position on the waiting list. So Marilyn, from your experiences working with those clients and on the Tenants Union advice line, what would your top tips be for other support or community workers who are helping clients maintain a tenancy? I guess my top tips would be, first of all, as a support worker, to call your local tenancy advice service. With permission, you need to have that from your client, but that allows you to then find out the options, the legal situation and options for the client. And also, there's lots of information through the tenants of dice uh, services and there's sample letters and sample letters themselves are often exactly what a support person needs so you know how to word and refer correctly to the situation. So that would be the first tip. The next tip would be to use all your experience with forms and administration to shepherd the client through the bureaucracy. Some people have an aversion to forms some have problems with skills, literacy, or just even the types of questions just don't fit their situation. And a lot of people have straight avoidance, anything to do with a form. They don't like to fill it in, or even if they filled it in, they don't submit it. This is a big problem. The third one is probably to use all your wordsmithing skills, and this is probably where I work most. A lot of the uh, people I work with, and, and I'm talking both on the advice slide and with my disability clients, they have a problem of being heard. Now, it can be a problem of both ways. You may need to soften them because they're actually a little bit uh, strident and want to be heard a little bit loudly, or you might want to strengthen what they're doing. And this is a particular problem you don't think about people have over times of having problems, be they social problems or physical problems or medical problems, have developed a pessimism or a passivity or being used to having people stereotype them as soon as they hear they half their problem. So using your wordsmithing skills to make sure they're heard is important. You also need to actually help them not damage the relationship with the agent, the landlord, or the service organisation. This particularly is a problem with strident clients, where they're actually so angry at what's been happening, so frustrated. If they're in a small town and they've, they develop a bad relationship with their uh, agent, they may not get any support from other agents because they all know each other. It's nothing to do with databases or anything like that. And also, if you're going to stay in the accommodation, stay house, you may have a long relationship with that agent and it's not just one letter that's going to 
sour their ear that's going to be an issue. It might be the whole relationship with that agent or service organisation. Thank you, Marilyn. I think they're really great tips for community and support workers. And Marilyn, I I note that you referred to the sample letters on the Tenants Union website. And for our listeners, I'll include links to those resources in the show notes attached to this episode. Thank you very much for your time today, Marilyn. My pleasure. Happy to help. We're now going to speak with Olivia again to get down to the nuts and bolts on some of the issues we've already discussed. If you'd like to hear more detail about what a tenant can do when they have problems with access, security, utilities, urgent repairs or modifications, then keep listening. Olivia, you mentioned access by landlords being an issue where tenants rent directly from the landlord. What should a landlord or agent do if they want to get access to a property during a tenancy? Yeah, and it's something that tenants advocates deal with a lot, um, particularly during the public health orders and the changes around COVID-19. Under the legislation, tenants and landlords have rights and responsibilities. Tenants have a right to the peace, comfort and privacy of the property. That's legislated. And the only reason that a landlord can access the property is set up in the legislation. So there's different reasons, but they're very specific. There's two separate categories. There's without consent, but they're very urgent. They would be very urgent matters or directions from the tribunal. So that's without consent or without notice. And the other area is with notice and they're very specific. So the Tenants Union website, tenants.org.au, has a really good fact sheet on privacy and access and it has a table in it that outlines the reason, the time frame, because there's restrictions on how many times in a 12-month period or when you can be given certain types of notice and it's good to look at that fact sheet and establish whether or not that is an actual reason as to why the landlord is requiring access and that they're doing it in the right way. Some of them are written and all of them have specific timeframes. So it's really good to have a look at that fact sheet or to speak to your local tenants advice and advocacy service for direction on that. Thanks, Olivia. Access by the landlord or agent to the property can affect a tenant's sense of security. A landlord is obliged to keep the premises reasonably secure Does that mean there's a minimum level of security in terms of door and window locks tenants can expect? There are minimum standards in the legislation, but there's not a minimum amount of locks and security devices that's required. Legal process or um, legal 
legislation, legal standards often speak to this idea of reasonableness. It's really to allow the tribunal to make a determination about what reasonable is, but it means that it's dependent on the kind of circumstances of that particular property. So the way that we have often looked at it is whether or not like a ground floor apartment or a freestanding house, it would be reasonable to expect that those types of properties would have locking devices on windows. An apartment that's on the 20th floor might not need locking devices on windows, but it's really revolves around that concept of reasonableness. And if it's something that you can't agree to, with your landlord or real estate agent, you would have to make a tribunal application and ask the tribunal to make a determination about whether or not the security devices that are provided are reasonably secure. So following on from that, if a tenant were unable to persuade a landlord or agent to bring in greater security, would a tenant have the ability to seek permission to install extra security at their own cost? Yeah, absolutely. And we see that a fair bit. So if you're replacing security devices that already exist with an inferior security device, then there might be issues with that. Or if the landlord's trying to do that, like if a landlord's trying to do that, that would probably fall within the category of repair. And you could ask for it to be replaced in a like-for-like way. But yeah, so you just need permission. Um, There needs to be agreement on that or there needs to be a reasonable excuse. And that would require the landlord to argue that it didn't need to be replaced or there wasn't a reasonable excuse. But as long as you have good communication and you outline the reasons why you're doing it, it shouldn't be a problem. And if you do replace any kind of security device or any locks, you need to provide the landlord or the real estate agent with a copy within a certain time frame. I think it's seven days. When a tenant first signs a tenancy agreement, are there rules about the minimum number of keys they must be given? Yeah, so anybody who is named in the agreement needs to be provided with a copy of every security, any lock or opening device. So, yeah, it can be problematic if there are people that aren't named in the agreement that need access to the property at different times. But unfortunately, a landlord can only be compelled to provide keys or opening devices for the people named in the contract. So I imagine that can sometimes be an issue in share housing if not all the people sharing the house are named in the agreement. But if a tenant thinks the locks and security are inadequate, then the process would be to try and negotiate with the agent and landlord and if that's unsuccessful, to make an application to the tribunal. Yeah, there's an application, a claim that a tenant can make for the landlord to provide locks. Essentially, it's to take action to ensure that the premises is reasonably secure. So you would provide the tribunal with an argument as to what you think that is, but ultimately the tribunal would determine what it is that needs to be installed. Thanks, Olivia. 
If a tenant were robbed or lost their belongings because of inadequate security, could they seek to be compensated in any way? So compensation in itself is a really tricky beast at the tribunal. Compensation in any jurisdiction requires a lot of evidence and strong legal argument. But that being said, you would need a history of the breach. So you would need evidence that you as a tenant had made the landlord aware of the lack of reasonable security and potentially have made a tribunal application for the landlord to establish reasonable security at the property but you would need a history of that failure to then argue that you should be compensated for loss or that failure to maintain the reasonable security of the property. I guess in any of these situations it comes down to the evidence that a tenant could bring but also to their ability in terms of time to be able to make that tribunal application and pursue it. A hundred percent. Unfortunately the tenants advice and advocacy services are unlikely to assist in a pure compensation matter. They just don't have the resources to do that but if you have those resources and the time to do that and you want to do it then you have a right to to access that process. And I guess too it comes back to your previous advice that If a tenant is approaching the agent or landlord about issues in the property, they should always put it in writing or confirm a a conversation in writing so that they do have their own evidence of having made that request or had that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. You spoke earlier about utilities. During a tenancy, who is responsible for payment of utilities in a broader sense? So... Tenants are responsible for their usage of power, gas, water, but the legislation articulates that those utilities need to be separately metered. So if they're not separately metered, then it's a landlord's responsibility to pay for those things. So it's really important to check that the provision of utilities to your property is separately metered. You also referred earlier to there being a process in the legislation for urgent repairs. What is that process? The process for urgent repairs is a tricky one. And again, I would refer to the Tenants Union fact sheet on urgent repairs because it's a process and you need to have completed all of the steps on the process to be able to seek reimbursement for any cost that you might have accrued during the urgent repairs process. So what an urgent repair is, is articulated in the legislation. So it needs to be an urgent repair to begin with. And then if you can't successfully contact or reach your real estate agent or your landlord, and then if you do reach them and they fail to act in a reasonable 
amount of time, then you as a tenant can get that urgent repair attended to at your own cost up to $1,000. And then if all of the steps have been gone through correctly, then a tenant can seek reimbursement for those costs. So it's not something that I regularly advise tenants to do because most people don't have a thousand dollars lying around that they can just use to repair a property urgently and um, if they do sometimes it can be really time consuming to get that money back then there is a process for reimbursement and you can obviously make a tribunal application but again I think it's unfair to expect a tenant to go through that process but it's there for a reason usually my advice is to make an urgent tribunal application compelling the landlord to do the repairs for a tenant to cover themselves off about any further damage that might be caused by the issue, as long as they've abided by their responsibility to notify the agent or landlord, then if further damage occurs, they can't be held responsible. Definitely. A tenant has a responsibility to inform a real estate agent or landlord of any issues at the property, any repairs that are needed. And then once they've informed them, then their responsibility pretty much ends. So then it's the landlord's responsibility to attend to that report. Is there anything you can suggest that a tenant or worker supporting a tenant can do in the situation where urgent repairs are needed? Yeah, like there's practical things like you'd turn the water off. I think urgent repairs can be very tricky because we know that even if tenants do go through the exact process, sometimes the tribunal doesn't make orders that the landlord needs to reimburse the tenant because they might have skipped one of the steps in the process. So my strong advice would be to have a look at the resource on the Tenants Union website because it's a step-by-step kind of process where you need to contact the real estate agent or landlord directly. If you can't contact them, then refer to named tradespeople in your contract. It's quite specific. So I think the best thing is to go through that fact sheet because these urgent repairs usually happen like at, you know, one o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, (laughs) you know, they're not going to be able to get in contact with your local service. You know, you're probably not going to be able to get in contact with your community support worker unless they're amazing and you've got their mobile phone number and you can Mm -hmm. call them in the middle of the night. But yeah, to have a look at that resource. I suppose it's good advice for tenants at the start of their tenancy to perhaps have a look at that fact sheet or download it so that when the urgent situation arises, they've got that resource to have a look at. Yeah, there should be contact phone numbers in your contract if you have a written contract. So it should be set out in there as well. If it's blank, asking the agent to provide those types of details. If the repairs are done, but they're done poorly or the problem isn't actually fixed, what can a tenant do in that situation? Well, arguably, it's exactly the same as the repairs process because it is still a repair. So you would follow the repairs 
process as it's set out. And if you already have tribunal orders for repairs, you could potentially relist the matter or renew the application and ask the tribunal to have a look at it again and seek further orders or maybe more specific orders. Because the tribunal, it will just order for the work to be done. It's not usually specific. We just say to fix whatever it is in a proper workmanlike manner. You might want to seek something more specific. Because sometimes landlords do their own repairs and that's where that type of thing would become an issue. So you might want to point out to the tribunal that it's been attempted by the landlord a number of times and they're not a qualified tradesperson or the person that they're asking to do it is not a qualified tradesperson. You could even ask the tribunal to make orders about who does the repairs. You could provide them with names of different professional organisations. I'm not saying that the tribunal would definitely do that, but you can ask. One thing we haven't discussed or or touched on yet is modifications. Is there any circumstances in which a tenant might be able to ask a landlord to make modifications to a property because they have particular needs? Yeah, modifications, it's a tricky one as well. And it depends on the type of tenancy that you have. Private tenancies, there's not really any remedies in the legislation for modifications, unless it's a repair, which is not really what a modification is. If it falls within the category of repair, then you could follow the repairs process. But if you're a social housing tenant, so public or community housing, getting your property modified for your specific needs, it's a requirement under their policies. So it is something that you can request and there's a process for that. It's something that most tenants would need support from either a community organisation or a tenants advice and advocacy service because usually you would need to generate evidence of why you would need the modification, so maybe medical evidence. Most of the time we see a requirement for an OT report about what specific modifications are required. And if the social housing provider doesn't agree to that, then you might need to go through the internal appeals process. So it's something that you would definitely need support with. Are you saying that the tenant could seek through the internal appeals process for an OT report to be done at the cost of the housing provider? No. OT reports are usually generated by local health services. I think they're usually done at no cost to the tenant or to the person requesting them. The only problem with OT reports is that sometimes there can be a really long wait list for them. So that's something that a support or community worker could do for a tenant they're helping is to organise an OT assessment and, and report and communicate with the local service that provides that to try and assist the tenant to get it in a timely manner. Yeah, exactly. If people are requesting modifications to a property, they would usually be already connected to a local 
healthcare service, they might already have an OT report. Sometimes it's about fine-tuning the recommendations. The only thing is the wait list sometimes is quite long, but that would be the only barrier. Thanks for that, Olivia. I should say here that we will, in a future episode, go into greater detail on social housing and Aboriginal housing and discuss the issue of modifications in that episode. So listeners should stay tuned for that later episode. They're all the questions that I had for you today. So thanks so much for your time, Olivia, and for the useful information that you've provided for support workers and tenants both. No worries. My absolute pleasure. That's all for this second episode in Renting Matters. Hopefully the information Olivia and Marilyn have provided is helpful to our listeners. Please stay tuned for our next episode in this series where we will talk about situations where a tenant chooses to leave the tenancy. In our third episode, we focus on tenants leaving because of domestic and family violence. We'll hear from Amanda, a tenants advocate, and she'll explain particular rules that apply to that situation. With the Residential Tenancies Act, there were some amendments starting in February 2019 that improved the provisions of the Act so that people experiencing domestic violence could give a termination notice so that they could leave immediately. And so that's to ensure their safety The termination notice still needs to be a written notice, so the landlord's copy that you're giving to them needs to also have a copy of evidence of the domestic violence. We look forward to you joining us again.